In-depth journalism in the Memphis community, The Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com. Truth in place. This is the Daily Memphian Politics Podcast. I'm Bill Drees. The co-editors of the new set of essays on the history of the Black struggle in Memphis is the main event on this edition. Top of the podcast, Chris Tudor, running unopposed last we looked to be the new chairman of the Shelby County Republican Party. Tudor, an attorney with Butler Snow, will likely become chairman at the February 24th local party convention in Arlington. Tudor wants the party to do what some Republican candidates have been doing individually, reach out beyond the Republican suburbs, and make the case for what he calls human flourishing political conservatism to, quoting again, center-right common-sense conservatives. He believes there is support to be had within predominantly Democratic Memphis along those lines without the local GOP distancing itself from President Donald Trump. The broader appeal by the party is what outgoing local party chairman Lee Mills sought during his three-and-a-half-year tenure. Mills is not seeking another two-year term, but remains on the Republican State Executive Committee. Mills says after getting sweeped by Democrats for every countywide office on the ballot in 2018, Republicans also need to improve the voter turnout in the Republican suburbs. Mills cites Democratic reaction to Trump's first two years in office as a force in the turnaround of Democratic fortunes in Memphis. The November election was the first turnout of a majority of the county's voters in a non-presidential general election in 24 years. Shelby County Democrats have their local convention next month. Changes on the Shelby County Election Commission, two of the three Republicans on the five-member body replaced by the Tennessee Election Commission, Steve Stampson, the only Republican reappointed, former Memphis City Council member and Shelby County Commissioner Brent Taylor, as well as Matt Price, appointed as the successors to Republicans Dean Allner and Robert Myers. Myers has been chairman of the Election Commission, so the commission gets a new chairman in the process. Benny Smith, a local computer programmer and contributing writer on blackboxvoting.org, replaces Norma Lester as one of the two Democrats on the five-member commission. The returning Democrat is Anthony Tate. Smith and Lester, the choices of Shelby County Democratic State legislators Taylor, Price, and Stampson, the choices of Shelby County Republican State legislators, and all of those choices ratified February 13th by the Tennessee Election Commission. Early voting opens Wednesday, February 20th in the special general election for State Senate District 32. The matchup between Republican Paul Rose of Covington and Democrat Eric Coleman of Shelby County. Early voting in all of Tipton County and the eastern part of Shelby County runs through March 7th. March 12th is Election Day. And the Shelby County Election Commission Operations Center at Shelby Farms renamed the O.C. Pleasant Jr. Election Operations Center. Pleasant, who was an election commissioner for 30 years, 24 of those years as chairman, died this past December. We're joined now by Dr. Charles McKinney of Rhodes College and Dr. Aram Katsusian of the University of Memphis. They are the co-authors, co-editors, I should say, of a new collection of essays on Memphis history, specifically the African-American struggle in our city. The book is An Unseen Light, Black Struggles for Freedom in Memphis, Tennessee. 
This book arrives as the city is marking 200 years since its formal founding and a year after much discussion about the city's future as there were official and unofficial observances of the 50th anniversary of the sanitation workers' strike and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. So, Dr. McKinney, let me start by asking, is our past our present and our future? And do we recognize our past when it comes calling? Wow, it's a big question. <laughs> um, so, first off, thanks for having us on to talk about, uh, talk about the book. Um, I think the past is instructive, right? And so um, the past has been laid out before us, and we saw um, really explicitly all of the challenges associated with the pursuit of freedom, justice, and equality. Um, we see rigid segregation. We see an unwillingness to pursue um, a path towards freedom, justice, and equality, right? And so what we've also seen is the ways in which um, inequality uh, is normalized, right? And so in that, in that regard, um, the past is extremely informative because I believe we've continued to normalize inequality. Um, and so the question we have now uh, here in the present is how are we going to um, conduct ourselves as we uh, as we move into the future? Are we prepared to um, to fully engage and fully confront um, the realities of persistent inequality and also to confront? Are we prepared to confront the realities that this persistent inequality is not an accident? Right. It's, it's not an, an accident of nature. It's not a, it's it's not, you know, oops. Our schools are more segregated now than they were 50 years ago, right? This is about um, this is about intention, right? And so, um, so that's the challenge before us, right? Is we know what the challenge is, we know what the problems are. The question is whether or not uh, we have the will and the courage to um, to, to face those problems. Right, and Dr. Gosusian, where do you think we are as a city in our perspective on Memphis history, the telling of the city's history and its mm -hmm. presentation? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, on one hand, Memphis uh, has been a city, and we try to emphasize this in the book, and particularly in its introduction, that has remained sort of relatively under-researched compared to other major southern cities. You know, um, if you were to st step back to 1968, at that moment uh, in American history, Memphis was sort of on par, so to speak, with other major southern cities, the Atlantas and the Charlottes and the Nashvilles and the New Orleans of the world. Um, and much of the decline of Memphis vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, its competitors uh, in the last 50 years has been not as many people like to sort of use as a shorthand, oh, Martin Luther King's assassination polarized the city racially and, and poisoned us essentially, uh, but rather it's the decisions, like Charles was talking about intentionality, right? This is the decisions we've made since that moment uh, that have in fact polarized our city. Um, and you can, we can point to policies, right? We can point to our schools. We can point to our, uh, to real estate. Uh, we can point to, uh, when black officials run for city government and beyond the ways in which whites have, uh, created creative political alliances to, to try to keep blacks out of office. Um, that's, a, that's, that is a, a thread that runs through modern, uh, Memphis history, uh, reflecting much more deeply on, on the, on the bicentennial. You know, I think Memphis is a city that, and I think what this is another thread that we try to show in the book, uh, in which African Americans have always been a central thread within the city's history. Um, and and we, we start this book really at, at the dawn of freedom, right, in, in the late 19th century. Uh, and we try to carry it through and look at the different ways that African Americans 
have been active uh, in trying to create a better world. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in some cases, uh, the essays are, are deeper, more detailed stories about incidents or events that, that we may know in a, in a very general kind of way, but they reveal some new, new insights. Uh, 17 historians have, have written essays in this book. Some reveal some new insights like the Church of God in Christ's role in fighting segregation and and lynching, uh, what led to the first uh, black Memphis police officers, that, that, that class of 1948. Uh, and, and Aram, you've written about James Meredith's uh, march against fear that began in Memphis. Uh, in an unseen light, though, you, you look at something not a lot of us might think about, and it's the relationship between Memphis and Mississippi in the, in that struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reverend Ben Hooks told me a long time ago that uh, it wasn't, it, it, in his era, it wasn't that Memphis was any better than northern Mississippi. It's just that Memphis was bigger. So you were harder to find in the city of Memphis if some trouble re- re- really started here. Talk about that that relationship, because Memphis was very much kind of, not a safe harbor, but it was an organizing ground, kind of a kind of a staging area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly Memphis is uh, very much connected to Mississippi and to the rural regions around it. Uh, in the words of uh, one of the historians who, who wrote an essay for our book, Laurie Green, uh, that Memphis suffered from so-called plantation mentality, even though it was the, it was the, the, uh, a city, an urban space. Uh, it still had many of the patterns uh, of of rural America and, and the Mississippi Delta in some ways. Um, in my own essay, I write a little bit about. This, this march that primarily went through Mississippi over 22 days in uh, June of 1966, uh, but started here in Memphis. And James Meredith was walking from Memphis to Jackson with the idea of encouraging voting rights. Um, and when asked, why did you start your march at the Peabody Hotel in downtown Memphis? He said, well, Memphis is the northern capital of Mississippi, right? And that kind of emphasizes the connections between uh, both geographically and culturally and politically uh, between uh, the two regions. But at the same time, Memphians, black and white, often drew contrasts between Memphis and Mississippi. Uh, when Roy Wilkins, the uh, head of the NAACP, came to Memphis after James Meredith was shot on the second day of, of his march uh, and was talking about you know, mobilizing for this po- uh, political endeavor through Mississippi, he referred to Mississippi as, quote, another country down there. Basically, across the border, it's, it's a very different place. And there's truths to both sides of that story for Memphis, right? And on the one hand, Memphis is a land of opportunity for a lot of rural, uh, rural black migrants. Uh, on the one hand, it's a place where there's you know, greater cultural expression and, and job uh, opportunities and so on. Uh, we tend to forget sometimes that Memphis is not just the beginning of the so-called great migration to the north, but also a way station uh, for, for many immigrants and sometimes an endpoint f- uh, for, those, for those same immigrants. Um, and on the other hand, right, Memphis exhibits many of the patterns in terms of uh, uh, brutality from authorities. For instance, in one of the essays, it talks about uh, the rape of two black women by two white police officers in 1945 that inspired a, a black political organizing in the aftermath of World War II. Um, there are many examples that we can point to in which you know, Memphis kind of straddles two worlds in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Charles, you, you talked at, at Rhodes College uh, in, in a panel discussion the other night about the book about, about the goal of subverting segregation. Subverting racial exclusion in 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 Memphis at that time, 
when it was very difficult to march. It was it was very difficult to do all of the things that we associate with the modern civil rights movement here. That included the NAACP arriving here in the wake of the L. Persons lynching in 1917. Roy Wilkins and, and others from the NAACP, the communication couldn't be in the open for that organization uh, because people were reading the mail. There was surveillance uh, of people, a theme that we we are still dealing with right. today. Right, right. So um, I think in terms of thinking about thinking about Memphis, um, juxtaposed next to Mississippi is is a double edged phenomenon, right? Mississippi, um, as one activist called it, the middle of the iceberg when it comes to thinking about um, thinking about places and spaces um, um, where uh, segregation is at its hardest and racial subordination is at its most is, is at its most vigorous, right? And so um, all of that heat and light on Mississippi um, obscures some of the ways, a lot of the ways in which Memphis operates in um, in very similar ways, right? So if we think Mississippi is really violent, then we don't know what to do with the routine violence that we see um, perpetrated by uh, the mayor, right? Perpetrated by Boss Crump, perpetrated by um, white elites. Um, that that is that is also shaping um, the political and economic and cultural terrain of, of of the city, right? If you run afoul of white elites in the first two thirds of the twentieth century, you may be beaten, right? You might get murdered. You will might you might get run out of town, right? So. Um, so we've got, you know, we had an opportunity in the book to really explore and examine the interior lives of African Americans um, and African Americans trying to figure out what do what uh, W. B. Du Bois called live, life behind the veil, right, the, the veil of segregation. So what does political organizing look like? What does labor organizing look like? How are people um, making it day to day behind the veil of, of segregation? And so each and every one of these essays provides a little bit of light. Um, right um, to show us some of the choices that Black folk are making in terms of trying to get free, right? Mm-hmm. And also, we also get to see um, in some really explicit ways um, the reality of of segregation, the realities of racial subordination uh, in Memphis, right? And so, when people say, "Well, you know, how come we didn't have X here in Memphis? How come we didn't have?" A history of mass marches. Why didn't we have a history of of all of these other things that we tend to associate with the modern civil rights movement? One of the answers to that question is um, the the daily reality of racial terror, right? The reality of violence. The reality of the fact that um, you know uh, standing up against uh, a, a, the white, a white power structure. Um, you've got to be prepared to lose your job. You've got to be prepared for physical uh, violence. You've got to be prepared to be run out of town. And so, again, that's something that shapes all of the contours of life in the city, both for black folk, but also for white folks, right? Because, um, again, because of these boundaries, um, these boundaries are helping to figure, are, are helping, are shaping and influencing the trajectories of the city, right? The trajectories that we're still sort of grappling with and contending with down to this day. Um, so as co-editors, um, you all both do this for a living. This is your career, your, your profession, history. So in, in editing the, the, the essays in the book, what did you see that, that surprised you? 
I would say more than anything else, because you have 17 different voices, right? You have 17 different ways of thinking about a, a broad project, right? Uh, and that can be the real uh, boon of an edited collection, is that it provides so many different perspectives centered around one theme. So we have you know, everything from sort of what you might call traditional political organizing. You mentioned, for instance, uh, Darius Young wrote an essay about the L persons lynching, and in particular the rise of the NAACP in the aftermath of that lynching uh, on a local scale. But you also have Beverly Bond's essay on L.O. Taylor, who was a reverend who was essentially considered non-political or apolitical, um, but uh, who did so much to document black life and culture in Memphis in the 1920s and 1930s and created sort of a, a more humane portrait and a more human portrait of African-Americans. Uh, we have an essay by Charles Hughes in here about Rufus Thomas, who you might not think of as a political activist, uh, but Charles' essay really emphasizes the ways in which Rufus Thomas was a consistent critic of the racial patterns within the Memphis music industry, that it didn't fit it neatly into this myth of Memphis as this place of racial harmony based on music. Um, and I think one thing that comes up again and again is that there are these different avenues to struggle. And within that, all sorts of paradoxes that can really help to illustrate Memphis history. I mean, Memphis is a land of black opportunity in certain respects, right? Uh, it is a place where African-Americans, for instance, are voting regularly in the first half of the 20th century. But at the same time, that's under the auspices of Boss Crump's regime. They have to vote for Crump's candidates under, under, under Crump's uh, will. Uh, and when you see African-Americans who are no longer politically necessary to the Crump machine, like a Robert Church in the 1930s, uh, like his political associates who are the victims of the so-called Reign of Terror in 1940, which is an essay that Jason Jordan writes about in which his, uh, uh, the police harass uh, the customers at the business establishments of uh, Robert Church's associates. When you put all that together, you, you paint a much more complex picture of what racial struggle can look like and what racial progress can look like and what racial subordination can look like. Mm -hmm. and, and Charles, to that point, uh, your, your colleague, Dr. Hughes' essay on Rufus Thomas in, in particular, he said what was, was also an effort on his part to push back against the conventional, conventional narrative of, of Memphis music. Right. Um, Charles Hughes' essay is... That was one of the essays that really um, that really opened my eyes. I mean, all of these are amazing essays, um, but that was one where you know Rufus Thomas, right? You know, this is the guy who's doing the funky chicken, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, the world's oldest teenager, right? Even Rufus Thomas, even somebody as 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 famous as 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 Thomas, um, labored under the realities of racial segregation and racial subordination, and so Thomas is a great window into. Um, having much a, a much clearer understanding about the way in which segregation played out in all areas of life one of our um one of the big myths right one of the big narratives that we have here is that um that music right the creation of music was also about the creation of these uh, of of interracial harmony right of these spaces where um the realities of segregation fell by the wayside as as black folk and white folk came together to create all manner of music. Um, and that's not accurate, right? Although that's something that we very aggressively trade on here in, in Memphis, right? And that, um, and, and that really problematic narrative has reverberated out in, in a lot of really significant ways in terms of how, um, you know, how, quite frankly, a lot of the booster, a lot of the boosterism in Memphis, right, seeks to sort of, you know, sort of skate, skate around 
um, contemporary racial realities and racial dynamics, right? And so, and so talking about these benign interracial spaces, spaces of the 1960s, and this is something that Zandria Robinson talks about uh, in her essay, um, too, in terms of thinking about, uh, thinking about Soulsville, right? So, so skirting around um, racial realities to create this, this largely fictional narrative of these interracial, you know, of, of interracial, of these bubbles of interracial harmony, right, that were constructed in the 1950s and 60s, that's the narrative that the city likes to latch onto, right? That's the narrative that gets, um, that gets reverberated out. That's the narrative that, that's sent out, right? And that's a narrative, that, again, that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't, in, that doesn't actually conform with the realities, right? So black folk and white folk, um, were not exempt from segregation. They made music together in spite of the realities of segregation. They made music together in spite of the fact, um, and, and Charles is really great in his essay about this, right? Rufus Thomas makes beautiful music in spite of the fact that he's denied um, publishing rights, despite of this, the fact that he's denied um, the right to be, you know, to be, to be named producer on, uh, on so much of his music, right? So, um, so he's making this great music, and he's also taking a hit because he's black in Memphis. And so those two things have to be reconciled as we start to craft a more honest analysis and assessment um, of what it was like to be black in Memphis in the 1950s and 60s. But we also say the same thing that people have said about Stacks about University of Memphis basketball, that that's the one time when, when the city comes together. So the narrative continues in other ways. Um, Yes, right. Um, I, I mean, you know, that I'm a Memphis basketball fan, just like you know, like all many other Memphians, right? And so, um, but that's also an opportunity to to simplify, um, to oversimplify um, some more complicated realities about life, uh, about life in 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 this city that we all that we all love, mm-hmm. right? So. You know, um, we can be really excited. And Aram's, I'll defer to Aram on this because he's done some he's done some writing on this, right? But we can all be really excited when uh, University of Memphis wins something, right? Or when the Grizzlies make it to the Western Conference Finals, or 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 whatever, right? Happens in 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 Memphis. But again, those moments. What do those moments actually mean, right? What do those moments? How do these moments play out in the lives of? you know, in the lives of, of, of Memphians, right? And so the mm-hmm. thing that I, that I like to talk to, point out about my, with my students, right, is that we've always had, right, you know, this is a sports culture. Right? We live in a, a society that loves sports. So we've always had these, these moments of national, right, of, of national pride with regard to sports, right? You know, America was beaming with pride when Joe Lewis beat Max Schmeling, right? You know, black folks could feel really good about that. White folks could feel really good about that too. That did not put a dent in segregation, mm-hmm. right? That didn't put a dent in the fact that the day after Lewis beats Schmeling, you're going to have to get on the bus and sit in the back, right? Um, you know, there were no increase in wages because of Joe Lewis's uh, victory, right? So, you know, we've got to be really honest about what these moments uh, mean uh, when, we, when, we, um, when, we, when we prop them up. Aaron, to that point? Sure, yeah. I once uh, wrote an essay, actually, in fact, about the Memphis State Tigers in 72-73, the, the team that went to the, um, to the finals of the, of the NCAA tournament. Um, and, of course, many 
any Memphian of that generation recalls that moment fondly. They tell stories about where they were and their love of Larry Finch and Ronnie Robinson and Gene Bartow. Um, and I got really curious in that when I moved to Memphis. I started hearing those stories when I moved here in 2004. Um, so it always been in the back of my mind. And then I, I decided to pursue it for um, some research. And I think there's much to it, right? The, like, like Charles was saying, like, you know, people do gravitate to sports and, and do see it as a, as a unifying uh, vehicle. And, they, and the, the team did ins- inspire all this incredible popular enthusiasm. Uh, and I try to document that in the article. But it was really important to lay that side by side by what was going on in Memphis at that very moment, right? Uh, the Tigers really start to hit their stride and capture the attention of the city in January and early February of 1973. They go on a big winning streak. That is the exact moment when the busing plan is being implemented in Memphis, uh, when the so-called Plan A, the first limited uh, mm-hmm. plan, is going on. And so the, the Citizens Against Busing Schools have already started that fall. Uh, the city council is entirely is voting entirely along racial lines at that time. Um, um, Billy Kyle's, the, uh, the, the reverend, is, is referring to sort of the harassment that these, that these students are facing. Uh, and, and Ben Hooks and others are, 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 and Maxine Smith are suggesting the, the deep racism that exists behind the resistance to the, to the busing plan. Uh, and it's quite open at that moment, right? That's not going on at the very exact moment that the Tigers are supposedly bringing the city together. So how do you reconcile those two things? How do you put them together, right? And it speaks both to sports power, but also to the limits of, of popular culture and to feelings in terms of thinking about race. Again, what matters is policies. What matters is realities. What matters is what opportunities are available to you based on your skin color. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the bigger story. Right, mm-hmm. right. It, it seems to me that in the last three or four years, mm-hmm. how, how our history is told, the history of Memphis, our history mm-hmm. together, has become more important even before MLK 50, even before mm-hmm. the bicentennial, as as we and even before really the Confederate monuments mm-hmm. thing. To me, it kind of started with the Memphis massacre mm-hmm. uh, marker mm-hmm. uh, and and the battle over that, which kind of brings me to what do you each think the importance of of these bodies, the Shelby County Historical Commission? the Tennessee Historical Commission, what's their right role and, and what what is their part in all of this, do you think? I think it's their job to represent not just their communities, but the ideals to, for which history is supposed to stand, right? It's supposed to tell the truth. Uh, it's supposed to aspire to higher human ideals. Uh, that is what we should be doing as historians. It is not for us to just stay in our comfort zones. Uh, and when the Tennessee Historical Commission was making the decisions it was making regarding the Confederate monuments, it was it was making decisions that went against the tide of history, that went against what went against humanity. Um, and I think here in Memphis we recognize that. You know, as as a majority, you know, the people of Memphis wanted to see that statue come down. There was ch- there were chances for dialogue before then. The Sons of the Confederate Veterans, the Tennessee Historical Commission, they rejected those chances of dialogue. There could have been other solutions. Uh, those were dead by 2018. Mm-hmm. Charles? Uh, yeah, I, you know, ditto. Um, you know, I, I think we just have to be honest about what these structures are actually intended to achieve, right? You know, the Tennessee Historical Commission, um, I, I, I never actually got the sense that they were actually invested in um, a vigorous debate or dialogue, right? Um, and we have to be honest about that, right? Um, you know, the state uh, the state passed uh, a law 
stopping the city of Memphis from uh, enacting the will of the citizens of Memphis. Right. So that's pretty significant. I mean, that, that kind of, doesn't that kind of tell you all you want to know about about this particular moment. Right. You know, um, state law says we are prohibited from have, you know, from removing these monuments. Now let's have a conversation about what we should do with these monuments. But by the way, if you remove these monuments, you may be in violation of state law. Right. So, again, you know, it's it's really important for us to sort of name uh, to name the terrain. Right. You know, to name the water, the water, to name the air, the air, to name um, the contours of how um, how 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 um, how historical thinking is or is not coming into play when it comes to having these having these debates and conversations. Is it how necessary are things like the essays in that book that are written by people who who this is their calling, not their hobby? but their calling. How important is it to have that vote, uh, voice on a continuous basis when we discuss issues like this? I think I can speak for Aaron by saying every Memphian needs to get a copy of this book. <laughs> everybody should read. Um, everybody in Memphis should buy, run out and buy a copy of this book. Um, we're, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, right, but this, we're, we're professionals, right? <laughs> we're, we're professional historians. And professional historians are trained in uh, a number of methodologies. Um, they are trained to think critically, um, to um, to pursue truth, as Aaron was saying a little earlier. Um, you know, we are tasked with um, telling the truth, and we are tasked with doing that in a way that um, that illuminates the past in as honest a way as possible so that we can have, again, honest conversations about our, our, our contemporary moment, and we can have a sense, just a, a, a smaller, um, hopefully better sense of clarity when it comes to thinking about how we should proceed um, in, in the future, right? So the, everybody in this book, um, the, 16, the 16 historians, and there's one sociologist, uh, Zandria Robinson, is trained as a sociologist. Um, all the folks in this book um, want to tell the truth, Right. And sometimes the truth, well, the truth is always complicated. Um, the truth in many instances doesn't have clear winners and losers. And sometimes it does. Right. Um, the role of the, the history of, uh, of the black struggle for freedom um, in Memphis uh, has lots of jagged edges. Um, there is lots um, to be concerned, lots to despair over, but there's also lots in here to, um, to give us, to give us hope, right. To give us a sense of, um, uh, of, of possibility and potential as we, as we move forward. And I think that's what good history does for us. It shows us, it renders um, nuance, it, it, it remembers nuance and complexity when looking, back on the, uh, when looking back on the past. And that's a great reminder as we think about the present and as we think about the future as well. Okay. Speaking uh, on a final point here, uh, as you may both know, there is a redesign underway of Tom Lee Park, a uh, complete renovation of the park. And talking about nuance, the story of Tom Lee is a pretty nuanced story against a pretty complex backdrop from for when his rescue of 32 people on the river happened in 1925. There are two monuments in that park, one from 2006 the other is from the 1950s, and the 1950s monument is perhaps best known by many Memphians for a phrase on the base that describes Tom Lee as a very worthy Negro. When this park is redone, is, is redeveloped, 
should that older monument be there? Is there a way to preserve the monument and change the writing? Because it seems like that would be the, the, the smartest solution in, in this case, right? As historians, you know, sometimes like with this whole Confederate monument thing, you know, people say, you guys want to erase the past. No one wants to erase the past. We want to tell a human, complex, nuanced version uh, of the story. We want to get as, ac as close to, to the reality of what happened as possible. To refer to someone as a very worthy Negro, to use that type of paternalistic uh, wording in a modern park. You know, this isn't some artifact from from another time now, right? We're talking about mm -hmm. something that, that would fit into the redesign of the park. Um, that this is a, the opportunity. This is the opportunity to do that, right? And you can write it in a way that there's no reason why the Tom Lee story can't be told in a way that would be satisfying to literally every citizen of the city of Memphis. Mm -hmm. My colleague over at Rhodes, Jeff Jackson, um, once tossed off this line about. Um, in, th in terms of thinking about this this argument that we you know that changing monuments is changing the past, and he said, well, by that logic, then we should not have taken down any of the monuments to King George the Third after we won the Revolutionary War, right? There's statues, there are monuments all across the thirteen colonies to King George. We win the Revolutionary War, so according to this argument, then none of those statues should have been removed because that would be quote unquote erasing our history. Well, that's not how this works, right? Um, monuments do not constitute the sole arbiters of history, right? So, um, you know, very worthy Negro, it's 2019. Are you serious? <laughs> right? No, that should not, you know, that, no, that language should not be anywhere on that statue, right? Um, a very worthy Negro. No, get rid of that. That should, that should go. And the other thing too, right, is, um, we have to stop having these conversations as if monuments, um, as if the only choice on the table is uh, the monument stays and uh, a monument stays in a park or a monument gets melted into slag. Right. I mean, you know, um, if we want to if you're so concerned about Tom Lee, then take Tom Lee, then take the statue into a museum. Right. Place it somewhere so that it can also, um, you know, that's another opportunity, right? So that it can, um, that we can have, it can be rendered in its context, right? Remove it, put it somewhere else, um, some, you know, an, an exhibit of, you know, 19th century, you know, 19th century monuments or something like that and have a, have a context. But if you want to leave it downtown in downtown Memphis in a town that's 60, that's over 60% African American, um, you can't have a most worthy or very worthy Negro on the base of the on the base of the monument that's insulting that'll be the final word our guests are dr charles mckinney and dr aram gasusian co-editors of an unseen light black struggles for freedom in memphis tennessee hello i'm omar Yusuf, county government reporter for the daily memphian after interviewing several candidates the shelby county commission appointed a new historian this week James Route III was unanimously voted by the commission to serve a six-year term as county historian. Route III is a fifth-generation Shelby Countyan. Route III's duties will include gathering information and working with other partners to tell the story of Shelby County. Previous historian and longtime Memphian Jimmy Ogle recently resigned and is moving to Knoxville to spend more time with his family. Route III told commissioners he wants to tell the story of the municipalities surrounding Memphis on a greater scale. He equated Memphis to the heart of the county and the municipalities as the organs of the county. Route III comes as Shelby County and the city of Memphis celebrate its bicentennials later this year. He will likely play a key part in organizing the historical aspect of those celebrations. 
The county commission also rejected Memphis Stowed and Gravel's request for a special land use permit to create a sand and gravel mine in Rosemark. Memphis Stone and Gravel argued to commissioners that rejecting its request would mean the company relocating to Mississippi in the next three years, and the loss of those jobs for the county. The Rosemark residents' argument about how the gravel mine would dramatically alter the quality of life was ultimately more compelling to commissioners. Following the commission's 8-1 vote to reject MSG's proposal, the next steps for Memphis Stone and Gravel are unclear. After a similar result eight years ago, Memphis Stone and Gravel unsuccessfully sued the commission for the special land use permit in court. For any new developments with Memphis Stone and Gravel and the county commission, follow along at DailyMemphian.com. For the Daily Memphian Politics Podcast, I'm Omer Youssef. The move by Labonner Children's Hospital to go beyond the immediate health care needs of its patients and a discussion about changing medicine's fee-based model. That's our topic on Behind the Headlines this week on WKNO-TV. Our guests, LeBonner CEO and President Mary Armour and LeBonner Pediatrician-in-Chief Dr. John McCullers. Subscribe to The Daily Memphian at dailymemphian.com. You can subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter at Daily Memphian, at DM, and at Omer A. Youssef. I'm Bill Drees. The Daily Memphian Politics Podcast is produced by Natalie Van Gundy and comes to you on the OAM Network. In-depth journalism in the Memphis community, The Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com. Truth in place.